Welcome to episode 12 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my resourceful co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, we haven't talked since AU. How are you doing? Doing great, Winston. Um, fully relaxed after a week of travel. Um, had a good time with the family on Thanksgiving. How about you? Can't complain. I mean, I, I just finished a 4,752-mile road trip. Um, and then immediately, like within a week of being in California, less than a week, I flew home to the uh, East Coast to have Thanksgiving with the family. So uh, I've been all over the place. Um, it's been just a little bit busy. Well, then I don't feel so bad about my uh, three and a half hour delay in Vegas coming home. <laughs> yeah, no, that that wasn't so bad. Although you did miss out on some epic go-karting. Yeah, speaking of the road trip, I'm trying to remember on the last episode before we went to AU, I think you you were just getting ready to head out. So tell us, how was it? It was, it was a lot of driving, more than I expected. I mean, I, I planned out like, oh, I'm going to be on the road for like 60 some odd hours, but the the immensity of that task doesn't really hit you until you're in the middle of Arkansas trying to get to Texas and you've got like six more hours ahead of you and you don't have coffee. Um, so it was it was a lot more arduous than I expected, but it was also a lot more rewarding. Um, just because when you're planning things out, you don't realize how like the the human relations that you relationships that you make are going to affect you and like the road trip is more than the sum of its parts. Um, it, it was sort of just like a good way to see the country, to understand the makers, their lifestyles, how they differ across the country, and, and really just have my eyes open to the, the different ways people are using CNC machines, to the different ways people uh, keep their shops. Um, some people are messy, some people are neat. Um, some people like, they, they have fairly simple lifestyles and, um, and sort of woodworking or CNC is like their escape. Um, some people like you are just, are like, it's, it's a hobby that's slowly taking over their lives. Um, so it's, it's cool to just see that cross-sectional profile of the country and hobby machinists all around. Um, it was, uh, there were points that were quite stressful, um, particularly going into New Mexico. I know I tried to leave your place in San Antonio at a reasonable time, but um, just with traffic, with construction, I didn't get into Carlsbad till it was dark. And um, New Mexico, like, I didn't know anyone there. So there, there were a lot of points where it's just like, all right, I'm going to go to a random Airbnb and, and hang out for the night. Like, that was probably the loneliest part of the road trip, uh, New Mexico. Um, but after that, uh, once I started to get into, like, the, the true Southwest and uh, I saw some mountains on the horizon. It felt really nice, and that's that's sort of when I started relaxing. First half was it was great meeting the people. Um, I mean, I, I saw Patrick and Michelle Melchior, uh, Dragonfly Woodworking, uh, Bob Claggett, Ben Myers in Arkansas, Myers Workshop. I stayed with a friend from uh, college in uh, Houston, and then I had dinner with Evan and Caitlin, recorded a podcast episode um, with uh, Jake from uh, Cryptic Works. Then I, in the afternoon, I went to um, Mikey the Maker's shop down in uh, Southwest Houston. And uh, we knocked out a quick Shape Oco project there. Then I headed to your place. Um, and so those first 
that first half of the road trip, it was just packed with people, like human contact, like every day, doing projects. And after that point, I sort of hit a wall of like exhaustion. Like I'd been just driving and doing projects and I, I really couldn't put out any videos because I didn't leave myself time to edit. I didn't leave myself time to explore. And so for the second half of the road trip, it was just like, all right, I got to get to, I got to get to the next destination, like uh, Carlsbad, Albuquerque, Colorado Springs. And I had hikes planned like in Colorado that I couldn't go on because I'd just run out of time. Um, driving from place to place and just the stuff I had on my agenda, just it was a little more overwhelming than I expected. And I didn't leave myself enough downtime uh, until like uh, AU finally arrived. Um, cause then I'm in Las Vegas for, for four days and I don't have to drive and I can finally just relax and, and just enjoy the show. And so when I finally got back on the road, it was kind of just a little surreal that, um, it was finally going to be over that day. And, uh, I, I was a little reluctant to hit the road. It was, uh, I think five and a half hours from Las Vegas to LA. And, uh, when I, when I finally pulled up in the driveway, there was no fanfare. It was just get out of the car, open the garage, start unpacking stuff, collapse, find dinner, go to sleep. Like it was just exhausting at the end, but, uh, overall I really enjoyed it. Uh, super reward, super rewarding experience. And just seeing the country change was, was fantastic. Uh, going from Ohio down to Houston, you see the, the leaves going from yellow to green and then uh, going into the desert, you see it disappear going into Colorado to Utah to Vegas, you start seeing them getting greener and greener, pass through the deserts, and then it's green in California. Um, so it's it's just a really cool experience, and you see things in a much different way than you would just flying over the country. Your YouTube recap of the trip was beautiful. You had some amazing uh, drone footage in that, and just the vistas of some of the parts of the trip were really nice. Uh, not talking about Pennsylvania. <laughs> the rest of it was really, really nice. Uh, no, we love Pennsylvania too. I'm just kidding. But yeah, I, especially out West, uh, we used to do that drive when I was a kid uh, from, we lived in California and most of the family relatives were in Texas and Louisiana. So usually a couple of times a year, we'd head out East and then back. I remember those trips, um, they were long, <laughs> but uh, I remember it's you know, it really pretty part of the country. Yeah, even when I was young, I, I remember appreciating the Rockies and you know, we did a lot of camping along the way. So. Um, it was fun. Yeah. I can imagine uh, doing it by yourself. That'd be kind of a different twist. It is. I mean, it's, it's pretty lonely. You have a lot of time to think to yourself and there are definitely parts I want to uh, visit next year. Cause I've, I've got friends who are planning on moving to the Denver area. So I know I'll be back out there. So I just need to find time to go and, and actually do some of those hikes that I had to pass over and really actually enjoy the state. So I bet you got caught up on all your favorite podcasts. Not as many as you might think. I tried to save the good ones for really long drives to reward myself on like the, the six or seven hour drives. Caught up on a little bit of making it. My favorite podcast like of all time for driving is uh, No Dumb Questions. Uh, Destin Sandlin, Matt Whitman, they just, if you watch Smarter Every Day, you know Destin's a, a really goofy guy. But he's also a really smart guy, and so they have really entertaining conversations um, that get really deep and that are still super lighthearted, and it's just overall like a really entertaining podcast that I can listen to for hours. And luckily their podcasts are pretty long, like at least an hour, sometimes an hour and 20. 
um, but they release uh, a little more infrequently every maybe two or three weeks, even a month. So I, I, I've been banking those up for the past three or four months. So I had a good amount to get through. I know from your perspective, it's interesting to hear because, you know, you had the long miles to put in. Um, and I can't speak for all the other makers that you visited with, but I know like when you were here, it was really great. And it was like two days of vacation you know, where I kind of took off work and uh, visited Vince Fab, um, Vince Ramirez, got to see his shop. And uh, yeah, I, I wish we could have seen him operational. Yeah, he was pretty generous. He, he kind of spent the good part of the day with us, uh, had lunch with them and showed us around his shop. Um, tried to get some good footage out there. I'll probably go back. He's always got something new going on there. So, um, I'll probably make a you know a few more trips up there when he's done something interesting and new with the shape Oko and uh, see if I can get some action footage next time. Yeah. Did, did I see correctly that he had that, uh, that air powered spindle up and running? Yeah. Yeah. He did a test cut. Uh, he posted it yesterday. So, uh, for those that have, don't follow Vince Fab on Instagram, um, he has probably the most uh, tricked out Shapeoko I've ever seen. Um, yeah, so he's currently, he added a, a sidecar spindle to the uh, Makita that he's got on there. Um, it's I think it's 60,000 RPM. I'm pretty sure it's an air spindle, air powered spindle. Uh, very high RPM, powerful enough to cut metal because he was cutting aluminum with it yesterday. Finish looked really, really good. So I think it's mostly a finishing spindle for him, you know, with small, small end mills. I know uh, our friends at Daytron, or Daytron, sorry, have some uh, small single flutes heading his way. So hopefully he'll be able to test those out, uh, which is really kind of the sweet tool, or sweet spot tool for a spindle that fast and with that lower run out. So looking forward to see what he does with that. Yeah, so we kind of had a fun project here. Trump, oh, you made the uh, Star, Texas Star, right? That was... yeah which that that's up and coming. I've got a, a pretty substantial video queue right now. Um, so in Arkansas, I did some, uh, a little test project in, uh, linoleum with Ben Myers. We, uh, cut out his logo on a stamp. And, uh, so I have that footage ready to go. The problem is, um, we were sort of just trying things out. Like he was using, uh, Vectric to come up with it the V carving tool paths to, to make the logo. And, uh, I sort of just eyeballed the spindle speed and it worked, but I didn't learn enough from that, um, experiment to, to feel comfortable putting out a video. Uh, so last week I, I did a couple more tests in linoleum with a V bit with a standard upcut bit. So after I can, I can figure out some, a good range of like starting feeds and speeds. Uh, I'll finally put out that video. And then I've got the Houston video with Mikey the Maker. Uh, that's probably going to be next, uh, hopefully this week. And then I'll get around to our project, that uh, Aluminum Lone Star. That was really just an experiment in uh, 3D finishing. Right. Yeah, I thought it came out pretty nice. We had some couple of rough starts. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's that's part of the learning process, right? And it's uh, something I can point people to. Make sure if you're going to do multiple tools in a single file that you identify the tools with a different tool number. So it's a good lesson. Actually, I think you met with uh, uh, Sonny, right, from uh, Gerbil fame? Did you get a chance to Yeah, with him? Um, so I did. Um, 
I was going to stay over at his, at his place, but uh, his his family's been going through a lot of stuff. He uh, recently had a, a another child, so I, I didn't want to intrude on his uh, family time. But I did grab dinner with him, and uh, just listening to him talk about the intricacies of Gerbil and other uh, motion planning softwares, it was all over my head, but like I have a lot of respect for that guy. Um, talking about like just the smoothing algorithms he's making work on on like a the uh, AT Mega platform, it's it's all over my head, but it's I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's incredible what he can do in eight bits <laughs> with the little eight bit CPU. Um, definitely get some maximum out of that. You spent four days in Vegas, and then what was kind of I, I lost track of you after that. What was the last segment? Did you was it straight to LA, or did you make a stop or two on the way? Yeah, the the last segment was was straight from Vegas to LA. Um, oh, also I forgot to mention in um, Utah, Salt Lake City, uh, one of the makers there um, hosted sort of an impromptu meetup since I was in town, and uh, so I got to hang out with a, a bunch of guys in the Salt Lake City area. But from Las Vegas to LA was just a straight shot. I, I considered stopping by one of the national parks, but at that point I was running low on laundry. And so I was just like, let, let me just get to a bed that I can call my own and just like wrap up the trip. So, yeah, I can imagine. Um, I should mention why we were here. Uh, we did a little mini maker meetup with uh, uh, another uh, instant machinist that I found out lives near me. He's more, I think, 3D printing uh, focused than uh, than CNC machining, but he does have a. I think he just recently had a Shapeoko uh, that was. Uh, Joe Mercados, I think Sanctum Bespoke on Instagram. Um, he does some crazy, crazy stuff for, uh, I guess, events, right? He does a lot of printing. Yeah, he gets uh, hired to do uh, custom uh, PC case builds and stuff. So he's got some cool stuff. Yeah, Ultimate Gamer Boxes and stuff for uh, some of the big gaming conventions. And um, really impressed with his work. So that was a nice meetup. We'll, we'll link them in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I just kind of wish we had a little more time to, to get something a little more organized, but we made pretty good use of the time we had while you were here, I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you want to uh, talk a little bit about AU? What was your goal for going there, and, and what did you kind of come away with? What was kind of the biggest uh, takeaway for you? Well, I mean, the, the ultimate goal was uh, I was supposed to help out with uh, the Carbide 3D booth, and I did help out a little there, um, but I did sneak away a fair bit to attend some of the classes. And uh, really, I was there to learn as much about fusion at a high level that I could teach to other people. Because they, they have a lot of topics, and I don't have any formal training in fusion. So it's good to sort of hear how the program is used from people who are more knowledgeable about fusion than I am. So um, I just really wanted to, like, uh, one of the classes we went to was 101 Fusion Tips in, like, 100 minutes or something. Yeah, Scott Moy's class. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just rapid-fire machine gun of, like, hey, did you know you can do this? Did you know you can do this? And half the stuff you probably do know, but the other half of the stuff, it's just you, you sort of s- sit there, like, with your mouth agape, like, wow, that just made my life a whole lot easier. And uh, you, you really don't figure that out unless you either search out very specific tips on YouTube or you put yourself in a situation with a bunch of experts who can th- like just 
throw this knowledge out there. And uh, that's sort of what AU was for me. Just the experience to, to sit with the gurus and pick their brains or just have them unload knowledge on me. Those are probably the hardest thing to find out on YouTube uh, or kind of any of the online training sources because they're so simple. They're usually like no one's going to stop and just make a, a 30 second video about some easy little technique that can really help your productivity in the tool. I really like that you put a whole bunch of them together, you know, make pretty much an hour out of it. Um, like you said, they went very fast. Uh, the good news is that was one of the recorded sessions. So uh, we'll be able to sh pretty soon be able to play that back at leisure. And I'm going to be taking some notes that I didn't take in the, in the live session. You, you wouldn't have been able to take notes. It was just too much. You would have had to sit through literally days of Lars videos to get that amount of knowledge. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, I saw a lot of stuff that I know would be useful to me. Um, so I, I will definitely go back and uh, kind of cull those down. And it's kind of like um, keyboard shortcuts, right? You got to really kind of practice using them, especially if you've learned how to do something. I don't want to say the wrong way, but a different way. Like you have to kind of retrain your, your fingers and your brain, right? To kind of take advantage of in a more efficient uh, workflow in, in something like Fusion. So I'm going to kind of start a little uh, roadmap based on what he said and see if I can kind of work some of that stuff into where it's the way I do it by default without even thinking about it, especially on the modeling side, because there's so much uh, productivity to be gained if you kind of take advantage of the some of the newer features they've put into Fusion. I can't remember the name of it, but like the little command box. There's all, all kinds of shortcuts now um, and highly customizable features that weren't in the product when I first started using it. So I kind of got by without them. And now it's it's actually takes some effort to go and change the way you work, right? To actually get the advantage. But there's a lot of, uh, a lot of advantage there. So I'm going to put the effort in. It's like living your entire life as a uh, hunt and peck like typer. And then realizing that if you're going to type a 15-page a essay, you better figure out a more efficient way to do that. And so for me, it's like if I'm going to spend probably the rest of my life using a program like Fusion, um, it, it would behoove me to learn how to work more efficiently. So I, I too need to go over this session and uh, um, just try and absorb some of the stuff that just went like in one ear and out the other because it was just so fast but i know there's good content in there i think you and i overlapped on a lot of the classes we attended um well there's one that i was in um that marvin told me about that i probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise uh mainly just because i didn't quite understand the subject um that i'm really glad i went to and that was uh i think it was called surfaces the ultimate 3d toolpath setting with daniel pacific and it was really i, I thought going into that it was going to be you know here's some HSM tricks for you, but it was actually um, all about on the modeling side, basically how you can build better models that machine better, right? End up generating or help the cam side generate much smoother tool paths. So it was all about uh, stuff that I'd normally ignore, like uh, curve continuity and ISO surfaces, kind of getting all those, putting some thought into them when you're doing the modeling uh, to make mathematically correct curves uh, which, you know, you wouldn't think that would have an impact on the cam side, but it actually does. Um, not so much on the small machines that we work with, but on the really high-end machines, that makes a huge difference on uh, kind of smoothness of toolpath and finish quality. So I'm going to do some experimenting with that and see, you know, if I can see a noticeable noticeable difference on, uh, on the smaller machines, especially on finish quality or surface finish quality, I should say.
so there was quite a bit in there. A lot of it was not yet available, or a lot of the tools they were showing weren't really available in Fusion yet. They were in some of the other Autodesk products, the kind of higher end product design uh, where they care a lot about ISO surfaces and, and continuity of curves. Um, but a lot of that uh, stuff, according to the class, is slowly coming into Fusion. Right, they're kind of right now going. Autodesk is going through the process of kind of picking the best features of across all their their manufacturing and and modeling suites and pulling that into Fusion over the next probably year or two. So it's all uh, it's all going to be useful eventually. It's going to make it into Fusion. You'll have more control over some of those features that these uh, other Autodesk like the Power Suite products give you today. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think the other class I took, I don't know if you, I don't think you were in this one either. Um, there were several classes on generative design, which is uh, for those that don't know, it's you've probably seen if anyone's been watching uh, any of the feeds from AU, these kind of computer generated uh, shapes, the kind of organic looking, I'm trying to think uh, like structures, right? Mostly uh, the examples they show are typically like motorcycle frame or, or you know, like a planetary probe they care a lot about lightness and strength and trying to optimize that. So there was a uh, generative design tools for industrial designers. I think it was Paul Shohi and I'm probably mangling these names, uh, Yuji Fujimura. Uh, there are two industrial designers. Uh, at least one of them works for Autodesk. I'm not sure about the other gentleman. I think they both do. That was a really good class. It was kind of a good introduction to generative design and kind of how it impacts uh, a typical industrial designer who's you know used to generating the shapes themselves, right? So it's kind of a bit of a challenge for those guys to turn that over to the machine. Um, but they kind of talked about how they brought it into their workflow and uh, learned some tricks I didn't know. Like a lot of times they'll use the generative design to kind of get their first idea down and then riff off of that, right? And they'll end up maybe even completely remodeling it by hand, but using the, the optimized generative design as their starting point. So it's really kind of cool. Um, lots of possibilities there uh, for just kind of coming up with interesting uh, new shapes, you know, for any kind of field, even like the the everyday carry stuff I do. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, a similar one. I think it was uh, Rob Lockwood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, I know they had one of the same parts they were talking about, that uh, shelf bracket. That was, that was kind of the example they used for going through different iterations, right, and getting a highly optimized part. So the cool thing about the industrial design ones, like they took that part and then went through like three other iterations of it that started with the generative design, but modeling it by hand all the way down to like, they were really um, working towards making it more or easier to manufacture. So they end up, I think the final design and probably the best looking one was a, it was completely sheet metal design, but it still kept a lot of that look, that kind of organic look. Um, but it was real simple to, to make, right? It would have been easy to manufacture compared to the original uh, optimized design that came out of generative, which probably only could have been printed through additive, like a SLS laser printing or selective laser centering in metal. So it's kind of cool. I learned a lot about uh, that kind of, that's kind of the hot feature, I think, of AU this year, right? The generative design. It is, but I, I mean, from, from what I learned, it's also not the most... Um... Uh, friendly to just play around with because you do need the uh, generative design credits. So you can't really play around with this technology for free just yet. So the, there are still some barriers to entry for just hobbyists like you or I. That's probably the only feature I know of that's not available in the startup uh, 
slash maker hobby version or license of, of fusion because they don't ship any features out of that it's basically equivalent to what used to be the ultimate license except uh generative is only in the commercial license for now <laughs> so we got a chance to talk to al uh Wetmo and some of the other fusion folks and you know we kind of gave me a little feedback what we thought there should be some way for uh the hobbyist slash maker slash student to play around with that um if not necessarily to generate a design um, at least to kind of generate the iterations, um, maybe just skip the manufacturing part for the non-paid licenses and at least let them play around with the tool and see what's possible, right? So hopefully we'll we'll see if they if that has any impact on future uh, future releases of Fusion. Yeah, I mean, I think if the technology is as transformative as I think it will be, eventually there will be some trickle-down version of that in t- available to us. Uh more more casual users i think it's kind of in its early stages we'll see where it goes over the next few years uh it's still even you know even for the folks that were working with the tool uh, and have been influential in the development of it they're you know they they all kind of say it's it's come a long way but it's still got a long way to go before it's kind of just a routine tool that you would be comfortable using for any any design purpose um trying to think what else i went to uh, oh yeah marvin Marvin Gropes, uh, adaptive clearing class was very good. Again, uh, there's a lot of science in the stuff I went to at AU, even the industrial design stuff. It was a pretty technical session, uh, which is great for me. Um, I, I, I would have been very disappointed if I went and it was mostly marketing and, and uh, you know, like product, uh, product pitch type presentations. Uh, I, don't, I can't speak for you, but I know that almost everything I went to was deep fusion and Autodesk product uh, technical tips or deep dive into some either feature of the product or things that you can do with the product, right? There was some, you know, quite a bit. I, I kind of focused on the manufacturing tools part of the product. And yeah, and the adaptive clearing, there was a lot more to learn about adaptive clearing than I than I, than I even uh, knew going into that class. So, you know, Marvin's, he's a scientist by, by trade. So uh, he kind of took his scientific perspective and did quite a bit of analysis on two-way adaptive specifically. And how it performs. It was good. It was very good. I, I thought it was really cool that he just had the data to back it up. Like in he pointed out how the Autodesk guys, like they hooked up a sensor to measure uh, the, the spindle load or the load on the end mill in an adaptive cut. But he actually went down to like the machine level and and measured uh, the motor loads on the three axis of the kern he got one step above like the level of data as to sort of just how adaptive affects a machine and i thought that was really cool that he could show that yeah so yeah for those that don't know um marvin works with uh kern cnc milling machines really high-end machines that have uh heidenheim linear scales they basically have very sensitive motion uh feedback sensors that can also measure vibration so he was he was measuring vibration on all the axis as he was doing the various adaptive passes. And like you said, I think he's got, I think that machine even measures uh, load per axis in addition to the spindle. So he had some really good data to back up kind of what works, what doesn't work. Um, Cause you think you would think two, two way adaptive would be harder on the machine, but uh, cause it involves both climb and conventional milling. But uh, he showed, you know, if, if you tune it right and I think, the fusion HSM tuning right out of the box um, was pretty good. Uh, you can basically get a very smooth cut, even 
going both directions. And not in every case, but most cases you can cut, you know, you can actually save machining time too. It's a more productive uh, toolpath. So bottom line, adaptive is good. You know, I, I've done a couple of experiments with it on, mostly on the other mill, because uh, I have a fast spindle and pretty fast uh, feeds on that machine. Found that the toolpath is faster than one way, but the calculation time is much longer. So it ends up, you know, overall time is, is worse than just one way. Marvin showed, you know, two-way does take a little bit longer and much shorter than I was seeing to generate. So I think it's very uh, geometry and feature sensitive. So I was doing really small cuts uh, with a small tool. I think if I, you know, I'll probably do some more work um, on some larger pockets and see if I can kind of closer to the numbers he was getting as far as calculation time for the toolpath. I, I think I just had a degenerate case. Yeah, I think geometry complexity does play a big factor. What about you? What was your, did you have a favorite class that you went to? I mean, personally, I enjoyed Marvin's the most just because like he had the data, he had like some, some pretty cool machining videos. Um, just the, the thoroughness of his presentation impressed me a lot. I can't say I got as much out of everything else because I mean, I went to the, the tips and tricks, really great stuff. Um, the intro to generative, um, good, but I probably won't use it. Adaptive is probably the tool I use the most. So knowing that um, two-way, if I'm going into sort of a production environment and the initial calculation time is outweighed by the efficiencies gained down the line, I think I'll use that the most out of all the sessions. Um, but just from all of them overall, I just came away really impressed with the community and just super inspired to to go and learn even more. What about you? Yeah, I'd say um, the Fusion Tips class, uh, Scott's class, was the one that I can most immediately apply. You know, since I come back, I'm I'm here. You know, I was doing some modeling today on a new fixture design and uh, making better use of the uh, it's the S key, right? It brings up a, basically a speed box for you to enter uh, commands using the keyboard. It's much faster than navigating around on the mouse on some of the modeling stuff. So that, that's already uh, gaining me some time and efficiency. I love it. Uh, yeah, everything else was kind of, at my point, it was kind of more theoretical because um, I don't run, I don't model at the level of an industrial designer and I don't, uh, I don't machine at, you know, high production efficiency. I'm more of a prototype guy. So uh, I think over time I will eventually get benefits from uh, some of the deeper stuff I went to. I did, I did try to go to stuff or take a few classes in areas that uh, I just wasn't familiar with either in fusion or in manufacturing, like the sheet metal. I think I mentioned that on the last podcast, never even gone into that module. I don't do any kind of fabrication here, but I heard some interesting uses of sheet metal for doing uh, things that you can't do on the modeling side of fusion kind of workarounds for some of the missing features. Um, even if you're not doing sheet metal work, it just has some geometry forming features that are useful uh, for other use cases. So that was worth that was worth it for me. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I, I, you know, other than the classes, obviously the the networking and the folks, the other instant machinists I met uh, were probably the, my my favorite part of uh, going to AU. Big part of why I'll be going next year. Yeah, the uh, the networking was also pretty invaluable. Like it was nice finally meeting uh, Dan from Datron. Uh, among other people 
and even just the the fusion people who I've I've heard of, but I've never actually uh, like had any interaction with them. Like uh, Al, I I'm, I've seen his name around, but I've never had an interaction with him on Instagram or anywhere else. And to sort of just have him drop into our podcast was pretty awesome. Yeah, thanks, Martin, for uh, grabbing him for us at the last minute. That was a that was a really great to have him on, uh, both of them. Um, yeah, so yeah, I was listening to uh, Business of Machining. I think it was a couple of weeks, a couple episodes ago, back in uh, Don Saunders was talking about his first visit to John Grimsmo a few years ago it was the first time that he ever pressed cycle start on like an industrial EMC, and because uh, I think all he had at the end of the time was either tag. It's Tag or is uh, Tormach, maybe. Um, I, I kind of had that same experience at AU with Dan. You know, it's the first time I ever got the press cycle start on a on a non-hobby class machine on playing around with that Daytron Neo. That was that was something else for me. That that is one cool machine. Um, you you have to if you've heard of them but you've never watched a video of one, you have to. These things are lightning quick. It's it's really mind blowing. Yeah, there's. Um, so the Neo is really nice. The whole, the bigger Daytrons, uh, there's a lot of really good machining porn out there, uh, mostly from uh, Dan and his team that put a lot of good stuff up and Marvin too. Um, there's a, they did like a webinar a few months ago on single flute performance in aluminum. And that just had some crazy, <laughs> crazy like ramping in. It's cutting through aluminum like it's cutting through butter. Man, it's just amazing to see that stuff. Yeah, so it was fun hanging out with the carbide booth. I saw some other, uh, you know, the, the AU's more, I guess, class and education focused than it is really a trade show, but they did have a exhibitors booth um, that was pretty well populated. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like IMTS where a lot of the big machines were there. There was a Haas, there was a Daytron, uh, a lot, you know, some industrial robots and stuff like that. Um, they had that factory of the future kind of imaginary uh, production work line using additive and in traditional manufacturing that was kind of neat but uh, I, I thought you know seeing some of the smaller there were some hobby class vendors there obviously carbide 3d uh five axis maker so that was kind of the first time i'd actually seen their stuff other than on youtube uh, they have some interesting things in the pipeline uh on the 3d printing side ultimaker uh for the the hobbyist class well prosumer really yeah and and form labs which i, I was very familiar with them i almost uh the trigger on a form one a few years ago um, but i end up getting kind of more into the cnc milling side but i'm still kind of keeping an eye on that machine or um they have a sls nylon sls system that i don't know if it's ever going to hit the market <laughs> i've kind of heard different things but uh they had some of the parts that were made on their beta version of that machine there uh pretty interesting so i might i might at some point pick up uh you know, kind of more modern 3D printer that's not FDM, but still kind of hobby slash prosumer. Also, uh, keep an eye on uh, the Prusa. Oh, that's FDM, right? Or are they, are they doing something new? No, they, they've got a, an SLA one now. Yeah, so that either SLA or, I mean, ultimately like SLS, because SLA to me is messy, although I love the resolution. Um, yeah, I don't think SLS is going to be yeah, it's getting a lot cheaper, but it's still uh, even for the plastic ones. They're still you know you're looking at five or five yeah five figure price tag on those low five figure. Um, but some yeah, I got to play around with a lot of the form two sample parts they had there. Um, 
really nice work. I mean, this stuff looks, I can't tell it from ejection molding. It looks, it's very different than FDM, much, much better surface finish. Uh, anyway, so that was interesting to me. If anyone's kind of considering going to AU, it's primarily a networking slash product education. It's probably getting better at the using Fusion or if you're using any of the other Autodesk tools. Um, Inventor is probably the closest thing to Fusion. Uh, it's definitely you'll you'll get more than more than you paid for <laughs> going there. There's plenty of uh, really good classes, really good instructors, and most of, most of the instructors are fellow instant machinists, right? They're not necessarily Autodesk employees. It was about 50-50, I think. So um, a lot of them were just people that actually use these tools day in, day out in their in their job and don't really have an affiliation with Autodesk, which, you know, I consider that some of the best uh, training resources that you can tap because, you know, they're going to be experts with the tool. They're not necessarily a tool educator, you know, that's kind of, they have to learn the product because it's just something, subject matter they have to teach. These are people that live this product and, use it. Um, we also get very well connected to the, uh, the actual product, uh, product owners and product designers. So a good chance to give them feedback on the, on the product and learn stuff from people that kind of design the software that we use every day. So that was, that was really good. Yeah, it was just, I'll, I'll definitely be going next year. I wasn't sure going into it this year, if I was just going to be one time thing, I'd, this was kind of the evaluation, but, uh, you know, kind of coming away from it, I would like to make attendance regular and actually work towards uh, being a speaker there someday. So once I kind of know the products a little better and have something compelling to say, I hope to be there as a speaker a few years away from that. I look forward to seeing you on the schedule. What else you got going on? I guess you're mostly uh, unpacking. You got a few days uh, at the new job, right? Before uh, we started this podcast. Yeah. So I, I started uh, working in the Torrens shop um, on quite possibly the worst week possible right before Thanksgiving. So I've been getting the worst dose of LA traffic ever. Um, but right now I'm still really just focused on settling in. Um, they they stuck me in a, a corner of the shop um, with a nomad and I can work on some small things there. Uh, my, my shop at my aunt's place is not at all functional. Um, so it's it's going to be still another week or two before I'm up and running fully. So uh really it's it's just getting settled still. Um trying to make small small projects where I can and uh, catching up on the video queue. So I've got at least 3 road trip related projects still yet to come out. What about you? You working on anything lately? I haven't run the machines since I got back from AU. Um mainly just cuz I was on vacation. We had some other stuff going on here, but um, also I'm working more on um, two things. So one, I'm working on a fixture, kind of a, a modification of that 3D printed fixture that I did for the for the uh, pocket NC that let me hold um, some small aluminum plates. But I'm trying to get it. Uh, yeah, I kind of the way I did it before, like it bolted the stock bolted to the base, um, and it was kind of three sides unsupported and that turned out to be a little too flexible. <laughs> the, um, getting some bad harmonics in the, in the stock when I cut it at the, at the unsupported end. So uh, I saw something on uh, Nicholas Hacker watch the way they use their current. They have a, a fixture for holding uh, their brass main plates that supports it on three sides and still leaves plenty of room to go on and do a, a three plus two machining on the front and back. So it's exactly what I need. Cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to design a fixture to move my, 
spinner design or spinner manufacturing to one assembly at a time. Like I'm not going to be making spinners in the large volumes I used to make, but I'll still make occasional ones. Uh, and I want to make like just one, one complete spinner at a time instead of the, the 10 to 20 at a time I was doing in the batching process before. So I want to kind of move the main body to the pocket NC, do that as a three plus two instead of a two sided job, just kind of do it all in one setup. I'll need like, I'll need the fixture for that. That'll be the kind of test part to see if that fixture design works. So I'm working on that this week. I was a little worried about the, uh, the work holding just from the bottom. I suspected you might get some vibration there. The only piece I've aluminum I did on that previous fixture was nine millimeters thick. And that was actually thick enough where it wasn't much of a problem. Um, when I put Delrin on there, that's when I started seeing some vibration, but the spinner, the spinner, uh, stock is one eighth inch. So I know I'll have a problem if I don't get it better supported. It's a little too thin to just hang off, you know, clamp on one end. Um, but yeah, the goal is to basically have a, a single part manufacturing going here by December. So I can start working off the wait list for uh, there's wait list for, I guess, Christmas gifts. Said I'd do one more kind of run in December and then I probably won't do any more till maybe uh, June or July of next year. Just, I'm, I'm gonna kind of keep it limited, right? I'll still sell them when someone really wants one, but um, I need it to kind of be a workflow where I can sequence it in with other stuff that's going on. Cause right now, like the old batch process I was doing, uh, would tie up my machine for like, or actually all my machines here for two or three days they were all kind of doing a piece of, uh, of the batch. So now I'll just be able to kind of hopefully keep it to two to three hours. Uh, I'll be able, still be running it on parallel. Like the weights will be on the other mill, the main, all the aluminum pieces will be on the pocket and seat. And then the, the wooden, uh, display case will either be on the nomad or on the shape. Now that I have that, I can probably leverage the shape. for that. Cause it'll be fast. Um, but my goal is to kind of keep it under three hours to produce a shippable part. We'll see how that goes. Sounds like a a good um, sort of production process project. Yeah, it's almost like deproduction, right? <laughs> so I'm going from what was you know a pretty well proven um, for me high volume production. With you know it's, that's ten ten units, right? It was high volume for me on these little machines. Um, you know, down to more of a, I don't know if lean is the right word, but only make what I need on demand and uh, kind of make a yeah, make a complete assembly from beginning to end before I start on like a second part. That, that helps me. I've had some problems with the batch process where if anything goes wrong, you know, you end up with the whole batch of ruined parts, right? And you have to start over again. It's a lot of vested time, not so much material, but time um, wasted, right? That if I make any kind of, if it's like wear in the tool or something like that, I have to kind of start over because tolerances on the, some of the parts are really tight. You know, you know I can tell that's one of the one, parts I make where I can tell when there's some tool where it actually impacts the, the fitting together of the assembly. So, um, the other thing I'm working on is, uh, this is kind of, don't know if it's going to work yet, but, um, I love the ER 40 work holding that kind of comes it's optional feature in the pocket and C. Uh, but I've got a slightly, you know, that's limited to holding up to one inch bar stock or round stock. It's just kind of the limit of ER 40. I think you can go a little bit oversized with the, uh, kind of specialty oversized call it, but um, if I want to go anything bigger than that, like one one point uh, one to five inch stock, which I actually have a potential commercial job that's going to require me to start with stock of that size, I'm going to need a 
different call-out systems. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if there's any way to, to, to fit a 5C call-out system into the uh, center bore on the rotary table. Kind of like the you know same concept as the R40, kind of passes through the center center bore and lets you hold bar stock or round stock. 5C is pretty cool because it also lets you do uh, uh, square stock and like hexagonal bar stock. So you can get some really odd shaped collets. And I think they sell soft, or you can buy soft, like, I don't know if they're bronze or brass collets that you can actually machine to hold really small parts of pretty much any shape. I think I think John Grimsway uses those to hold some of some of the parts in his lathe and really tiny parts. Um, kind of like soft jaws, but using collet instead of a vise. So it's a very flexible system. It's a little pricey compared to something like an ER40, but I have to see if I can make an adapter and somehow get it to work. So I'll be working on that this week and next week. Sounds like fun. Can't wait to see that on uh, Instagram. Yeah, and then oh, and the tombstone, right? So um, tombstone's working great so far. Uh, as far as uh, really, all I've done with it is make sure I, I get kind of a mock-up with the four vices and kind of the representative stock size I'll be using. Ran it all through uh, the different uh, axes of motion. Make sure there was no collision with the machine. So now I'm kind of ready to to actually go and start chewing the faces and kind of finishing the final piece on the on the two tombstones that uh, John Saunders made for me. So I think I'll do that this week too. I didn't want to do it before I came back from AU in case I learned something <laughs> that I might want to use. But uh, I, I had to I had to make the dial indicator. That's the other piece. I had to do kind of some preparatory steps. So I have the I think I talked about it last time, but I have a uh, way of mounting a dial indicator pretty accurately now on the on the pocket and C. So I'll use that to make sure everything's trued up and uh, do a final facing on the four faces and hopefully uh, be ready to mount the devices permanently by this weekend. A whole lot of work making zero parts <laughs> this week. <laughs> at least at least one of us is making parts this week. So you um, when do you think they'll be making your first content for carbide that's going to, or, or where is that going to come out? Is that going to be on there? Do they even have a YouTube channel? I haven't really, I know they have the forums, but. <laughs> See, you are the prime reason why it was kind of important that they hired me. They do have a YouTube channel. It's kind of sparse. Their uh, spotlight videos go out on it. And right now, not much else does. Yeah, I've seen that. I'm sorry. I forgot about that. That's where the, the more educational stuff will show up. Um, so if I want to do a more tutorial style video, that's where it'll probably end up from some of the more experimental stuff where I'm just messing around or making some unpractical thing. Um, that'll probably be on my channel. Um, I'm hoping, uh, by next week we might have a video up, sort of an announcement. Um, so we've been working on improving the Fusion 360 post-processor because uh, some people might have been seeing arc errors every now and then show up. Um, and yeah, there's there's an underlying issue in Fusion where they round off the digits not quite right. Um, and Gerbil, the, the firmware for Shapeoko, Nomad, and a bunch of other hobby CNCs, um, it... Uh, It'll do a check to make sure that the um, the start and the endpoint are basically on a circle of a constant radius, and if it's not, it throws an error. And the error is not usually fatal. Like um, some uh, G code senders will just ignore it, like Universal G code sender. But it's still an error, 
it's something that carbide motion will flag, and that's what causes it to fail uh, when certain Fusion 360 programs are run through carbide motion. So we've been working on the post-processor to get it to actually work. Like, every last decimal point of the number um, coordinate that Fusion 360 exports will be correct. Um, so we're hoping to make an announcement about the, the sort of the final official version of that post soon. Does that affect both Shapeoko and Nomad? Yes. Uh, so basically, any, any Fusion 360 G-code uh, that uses arcs um, is is has the potential to fault out because of that error in carbide motion. Well, that's good work. Glad you're there. It's already paying off. It's nice working on things that will help the community. So uh, I'm excited to to finally uh, unveil that news and sort of explain the math and the the reasons behind it and why we think we finally put the issue to bed. Good. I'm looking forward to that video. Well, I think um, the Skype quality is going down fast, <laughs> our connection quality, so we probably should wrap it up. Um, any any last things you want to talk about or, or you got coming up next week, uh, either Winston Makes or Carbide 3D? Keep an eye out for um, my, my Houston video coming out hopefully this week and uh, linoleum shortly after and uh, we'll figure out the rest of the upload schedule as we go so okay good yeah same here i think i'll, I'll keep working on uh probably just some modeling stuff this week and then this weekend make chips for the first time and probably what almost since you were here <laughs> that was the last time uh yeah, yeah i ran a spindle you, you, here you better get back to work i'm i'm catching up to you in uh, instagram followers but yeah that'll that'll change soon uh got an itch to start making some parts so um well, Winston, I'm really glad you, well, I know you're back in New Jersey now, but I'm glad your your home base is, you know, successfully moved to the West Coast. It sounds like you're getting ready to get your, uh, getting some really interesting work out there with Carbide and uh, kind of West Coast maker scene. Really looking forward to seeing what you got going in the next uh, 12 months. It's going to be good. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, good night, Winston. Have a good night, Eddie.